Well, I would like to direct your attention this morning to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. You will find that on page 223 in your pew Bible in front of you. And as always, I I would encourage you to have a copy of Scripture in your lap today. We're just going to work our way through about 18 verses, verse by verse. And um, it will be helpful for you to have the Scripture. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to just take that pew Bible in front of you. And that will be our gift to you. And we would love for you to take that and you would cherish that. And uh, In fact, I'm looking at that clock. I can't believe it's 1055. Um, That means what? I got 65 minutes to preach, I trust. And so I think we should send Don and the praise band away more often. This is fantastic, right? Um, you'll have to, we'll delete that from the recording, I trust. Um, so it is good to be here. I am delighted to be with you this morning and to be in God's Word as we consider His Word for us. I trust He will speak to us through His Spirit. Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies." Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, poor, or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if He will redeem you good, let Him. Let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay on His feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And He said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he said, bring out the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, and to learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in which we can come now and hear from your word, and we trust in your kindness and goodness to us. You have preserved this text for us that we might set our heart's attention upon it today. I trust that you, through your spirit, 
will minister to us and speak to us. We believe, in fact, Father, that if you do not come by your Spirit today, that we will simply have wasted our morning. And so we are desperate for you to be here. There's nothing I or any other man can do of any eternal significance without the work of God. And so please, Father, we beseech you. Will you please work in our hearts? Will you speak to us your character and your works? Will you draw us close to you? Will you lift up the downcast and encourage the faint-hearted and motivate the lazy? Will you please come and show us your riches, show us your love, that we might know our God better and follow Him more faithfully with a deeper joy and abounding love for Him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in May of 1996 that I took my sweetheart hiking in the mountains of Southern California. And once I had uh, built a campfire and cooked her dinner, I opened my Bible, and uh, she will tell you, I preached my first sermon. Uh, The message was on the glorious plan of marriage. And so I talked to her about what I thought God teaches us about marriage. And I unfolded this sermon. And to be honest, it was pretty good, uh, especially uh, for a first sermon. It even had an invitation at the end in which uh, she responded uh, by becoming... My fiance, and uh, that's her, by the way. So I'm, I am referring to Allegra, and it was it was a, a wonderful time, and it's certainly a cherished memory for both of us. Uh, marriage proposals are somewhat challenging. Um, there's a lot of weight that goes into them. It's all on the guy, by the way. So the girl just goes along for the ride, and all of it depends upon the guy. And in my day, there wasn't much help except from your friends that you may talk to about their suggestions. Today, there's all sorts of help on how to actually get a marriage proposal done right. You have the right mood and the right setting, the right timing. You're hoping for the right answer. And so um, I, I actually looked at some of these uh, marriage proposal sites, and they're full of wonderful suggestions. Like, for instance, do not put the ring in any food that she might eat. Um, in fact, the web, this one website says the last thing you want to do is to have to propose to her while she is being wheeled into surgery. And so that seems wise to me. In fact, a number of websites have actual proposal stories. I like the one when a lawyer uh, made a deal with the police officers to arrest his girlfriend. And so she was pulled over uh, by a number of cop cars with flashing lights, and they took her out of the car and read her her rights and put her in the back of the car and drove her to the city jail and locked the door, and they said she could have one phone call. Of course, she called her lawyer boyfriend who showed up and said, there's only one way to get out of jail, and that's to be my wife. I'm I'm pretty sure she's still in jail. So... um, my, my favorite uh, proposal was a um, proposal story was a guy who faked his own death. And at the uh, funeral visitation, when the girlfriend sobbingly approached his coffin, he, uh, yep, he, he sat up and asked her to marry him. Now, let me tell you, that's romance, right? Um, and she uh, slapped him a couple times and, and said yes. 
in, ca- in case you're single and you're wondering, uh, these are all great ideas. So I just, I heartily recommend that you try any of them. Um, my least favorite was a, was a man who lived in a different state with his fiance, and, and so he mailed her a first-class plane ticket when she flew to the airport and got off the plane, and there a limo was waiting for her, and the limo just happened to be playing all of her favorite songs. The limo then drove her to a fancy store where she was greeted by a store manager and a rack of clothes that her boyfriend and the store manager had picked out along with shoes and that she got to pick out the one that she wanted. The limo then, once she got dressed, took her to the salon where she had three hours of massage and manicure and pedicure and makeup and hairstyling. After that, she was driven to a resort where she was greeted by a horse and buggy and taken around a lake lit by candles. And the horse and buggy arrived at the red carpet where she then got out of the horse and buggy and there she was confronted by a violinist playing a song in which her boyfriend had written for her. She actually wrote, walked down the red carpet and up on the stairs the boyfriend emerged and he began to sing the song to her in which he had wrote for her. By this time he was joined by a 45-piece orchestra. Right? And uh, when, when she got, uh, when his song was over, he got down on a knee and, and said, will you marry me? She said, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. She, of course she said yes. Um, and, and when she said yes, fireworks exploded in the sky above him. To be honest, I kind of hate this guy. Um, I, uh, I probably shouldn't have even told that story. Uh, one more. Um, this is this one I like. Uh, a man, a guy and his girlfriend, they bought an old house and they were going to plan to move in when they got married and the house was kind of beat up and they were poor and so they had to do all their own renovations themselves. They spent a lot of time at Home Depot and um, and they would they would often, even when they're tired, walk through Home Depot and just kind of dream what their home would look like. And And one day this guy called his girlfriend and said, hey, meet me at Home Depot. And so she did, and she was greeted by the store manager who took her to the, the home and garden section. And, and there at one of the patio furniture, he had set out um, takeout meal, and they had a nice meal there in Home Depot. And then afterwards, he got down on a knee and, and asked her to be his wife. And, and I think, I mean, that guy has a, that, I mean, that to me is a good idea. I mean, who needs a limo and an orchestra when you have power equipment? All right. Um, well, that... You know, in my study this week, I actually came across one more um, marriage proposal. And it, it's actually the most outrageous one I considered. It's found in the Bible. It's Ruth chapter 3, in which in this one, a woman does the proposal and does so at midnight in his bed. Um, it is uh, very much a, if you will, a story filled with tension and suspense and uh, even scandal, I believe. If we, you've been around for a couple of weeks, you know we've been studying this book of Ruth. We take four weeks to get through it. We saw that really kind of the theme that runs through this book is that God is in control in the everyday life and God works through tragedy and hardship to bring us through these things in order to provide for us and care for us and that God is sovereign in control. And so we saw in Ruth chapter 1 that this woman Naomi experienced a great deal of tragedy including a famine and then a self-induced exile then her sons marrying idolaters and then barrenness in her sons' lives and then death and then death and then even more death. In fact, Naomi concludes in chapter 1, the hand of the Lord has gone against me. I went away full and God brought me back empty. When we get to Ruth chapter 2, God's mercy becomes more clear, right? The clouds begin to break a little bit. 
And Ruth goes out to glean and she happens to glean in Boaz's field and Boaz happens to be there that day and she happens to catch his eye. And there's this wonderful interchange uh, um, conversation that we considered last week and there's, there's wine and vinegar and there's a roasted barley meal and, and, and uh, there's, there's all this romance that's taking place. And it's this beautiful picture. And then she comes back to Naomi. And Naomi, by this time, is bouncing off the walls as she sees the provision that Ruth brought home with her. And she would say in chapter 2 and verse 20, God's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. In other words, all the darkness of Ruth chapter 1 is gone. And now God is clearly seen to be working. Of course, all her needs are not yet met, which sets us up for Ruth chapter 3. She has food. She's been gleaning, but that's not really a way to live in the future. She has no family, no security. And so she needs a provider. She needs a protector. She needs a family. And so we come here to this chapter. In fact, even in chapter 2, we kind of left off with this hanging there. The very last verse, it says, And she lived with her mother-in-law. Right, that's where she was. And we're waiting, well, what's going to happen? And, and now we come to Ruth chapter 3. And I mentioned, this is pretty racy. Um, I, I, in fact, I prayed on how I'm supposed to preach this text this week. In fact, I even prayed, am I supposed to pe- preach this text? I mean, you you kind of want to look, look at the book and make sure it's still the Bible you're reading. I mean, this is stuff you're not, not expecting for God's people to be doing. And it's been somewhat challenging. You've got to figure out what is it, Lord, that you want me to, to teach. There, in fact, are so many wonderful truths in this chapter, and we're going to try to consider many of them. But if there's anything that I think overshadows Ruth chapter 3, it is the love of God. So I want to talk to you this morning about the love of God. And, and, and we'll see how His love is lavish and glorious and wonderful. Sometimes God tells us His love in what we might call proposition. For instance, one of my favorite verses is Romans 5.8. And God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God says, I love you, and you don't want to know why. And He gives us this truth uh, uh, the, to prove His love. But sometimes God shows us His love, not by propositional truth, but by giving us a picture, a story. And I think that's what's happening here. I think we are uh, invited to not just see how these characters interact. And by the way, I believe this, this story is true. I believe in every detail of, of this story is true. But I also believe that it is given to us, not just to show us what's happening in their lives, but to see deeper truths about God. Of course, Boaz is not God, and Ruth is not God, and Naomi is not God, but God's love is displayed in their lives, and His love is lavish. And so my hope for you, Christian, as I prayed this week, is that you would see the love of God clearly today, and that you would grow in your appreciation, that God would fan those embers in your heart, and that you would walk away from this story, walk away from this time together as God speaks to you through His Word with a greater desire to follow Him because of the love in which He has so lavishly shed upon you. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. My hope for you, my prayer this week, is that God would open your heart. I have prayed that God would bring some here today who do not yet understand the love of God and certainly have never experienced the love of God as we see displayed here and that for the first time perhaps in your life you might call out to Him, save me. I love you too. And so let's consider Ruth chapter 3. We'll do so in four scenes. Um, Each scene has a main character, the first being one including Naomi. And we could call this Naomi's hopeful scheme. Naomi's hopeful scheme. Note verse 1. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, this is kind of a long way to say, Ruth, you need a husband. This is what Naomi's teaching her. When she says you need rest, what she's referring to is the security and the comfort and the provision that a woman would find with a husband. Now, this is not a new observation for Naomi. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when they were still in Moab and Naomi was trying to persuade her daughter-in-law to stay there, she was doing so because Moab provided the best opportunity for them to be married. In fact, Naomi even prays to God that these girls would find a husband. You know, in chapter 1, in verse 9, she says, The Lord grant that you might may find rest, each of you in his own in the house of her husband. You see that? May you find rest in the house of your husband. Now in verse 1 of chapter 3, she's saying you need rest. It's clear as we move on through this text that what she's talking about is you need a husband. And Ruth evidently is aware that she needs a husband too. And so she, I trust, says, okay, what do you want me to do? And Naomi responds, I'm glad you asked because I've been working on a plan. And you see her plan in verse 2 is not Boaz, our relative, with whose woman you were. What she means when, by saying with whose women you were, she's referring, as we saw in chapter 2, Boaz's field workers in which he invited Ruth to follow her, his field workers, his women, in order that she might be safe and receive um, a, a number, a, 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 quite a bit of barley and grain in order to survive. And so she's been following uh, these women. And since that Naomi's saying, Ruth, he's been, he's been letting you glean in his fields. He's obviously interested in you. He's been dumping grain in your path for weeks now. Um, plus, she says, He's a relative. You see that in verse 2? It's not Boaz, one of our relatives. In other words, he's kin. This will be important, not just in securing for Ruth a husband, but for actually preserving the family lineage of Ruth's former husband, who has now died, as you know. And we'll consider that more later. And maybe Naomi's wondering, by, you know, it's been eight weeks, maybe two months since she's been harvesting, gleaning. And maybe by now she's hoping that he would have made a move, but he's certainly not doing so. And if he's not, well... Naomi will. Reading on in verse 2, we read, See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Makes me kind of wonder, how did she know? And I just think Naomi's kind of one of those ladies that knows a lot that's going around town. And uh, she is aware of where he's going to be. And she is even have a plan that he is going to be out this night. And he would be on a threshing floor, which would just be a, a kind of a cleared spot, part of ground, usually on a high spot that would catch the evening winds. The reason this would be important was when they're threshing, they would take a pitchfork and they would uh, throw up the sheaves into the air. And that wind would carry the husks away and the heavy grain would fall there to the ground. And this would be kind of the last phase in the harvest separating the, the wheat from the chaff or the grain from the husks. It would be a wonderful time. This is always a time of celebration. It's a celebration that the harvest has brought in. And I, I imagine this is an especially um, exciting time for Boaz because you remember why Naomi left Bethlehem in the first place. Well, there was a famine. You remember why she's returned? Well, because God has ended the famine. And so I think we're led to believe that this is perhaps the first real harvest that they have had in years and years, perhaps even a a decade. And so they are going to be out there celebrating and laughing. And there's going to be great joy as Boaz and all his workers are out there. And there's always, from my research, a celebration feast at these times. And so there's just going to be a great mood and great festivities out there at the threshing floor. And Boaz is going to be there. And so Naomi says to Ruth in verse 3, Wash, therefore, and anoint 
yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. In other words, take a shower, right? Put on some perfume and get dressed. Now, some people think that what she's referring to is that you need to uh, present yourself as a bride. And, And that may be the case. Others suggest, which I'm more inclined to agree with, is that what she's doing through this this process is she's communicating to Boaz that her period of mourning is over, that she is now an eligible woman. She is ready to marry. The reason why we might think this is David went through the exact same process when he finished mourning over the death of his son. He washed himself and anointed himself and changed his clothes to communicate that his mourning was over. And so we're wondering, is, is this what she's doing? So she's going to, to, to tell Boaz, listen, I'm no longer mourning. I'm, I'm ready to be married. Plus, she's going to smell better. And so that's uh, certainly an advantage for her. Well, reading on in verse 3, um, so, that, so far I think so good. We like this plan. Um, but she says, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So hide out until after dinner. Now, ladies, I just want you to see the wisdom here in God's word, Um, right? Do not bring major news to your husband until after supper, right? It's biblical. It's right here. Um, Make sure he's eaten a full meal before you show him the dent in the car or bring out the medical bill or tell him you want to paint the house a new color, right? And and so Boaz is there to eat and he's going to get full and, and happy. And so far, the plan is going great, right? Get all dressed up, make sure he's got a full belly, And it's here in verse 4 that things uh, get a little shady. We see, she says, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this seems to me like an astonishing plan. I I don't know if this is what they did before eHarmony or how this all worked out, but... (laughs) There's there's a number of steps, right? Step one, make yourself beautiful. Step two, sneak into his house. Step three, wait till he has a full belly and he's eaten. Step four, lift up his blankets and crawl into bed with him. And I imagine Ruth's got to be thinking, well, where do you think that's going to lead? Which leads us to step five, as Naomi says, and he will tell you what to do. Um, and, and, And I just, it's extraordinary to me. Um, it's, this is um, scandalous. In fact, uh, last week, if you were here, uh, in Ruth chapter 2, I gave you a little dating advice. Let me, let me do so again, if you don't mind. Don't ever do this. Right? <laughs> Under any circumstances, this is a, a bad idea. I think I know it's in the Bible, but sometimes God works through our wisdom, and sometimes he works to spite us, right? And so I would suggest you stay away from this. I, I don't know what's wrong with a conversation over dinner. I don't know why, to be honest. In all my research I did, why, why this tactic? It seems like a bad idea to me. You have a happy man and a beautiful woman alone together in bed. In fact, I, the one thing I appreciate is when she says in verse 4, observe the place where he lies. You see that? She's saying, Ruth, you need to watch him when you're hiding out because you want to make sure you don't go to the wrong guy, right? Because that's embarrassing because, oh, wrong legs, sorry. Um, And then you move on to the next guy. And so watch where he is and then lie down with him. It sounds like seduction to me. Doesn't it sound like she's trying to seduce him? In fact, it would have done even more for the Hebrew audience because there are three words in verse 4 that have very subtle and enticing meanings. First being the word uncover which in the, biblical, in the Bible is often re, uh, referred to uncovering one's nakedness. The second being uh, his feet, sometimes translated legs, often translated sexual organs. 
And so this could be read, uncover his, his private parts. And then the word lie with him is almost always in the Bible referred to sexual intimacy. And we're left wondering, is Ruth, is Naomi suggesting that Ruth seduce him? I mean, she is a Moabite woman. This is what they are known for, according to Numbers 25. Is she asking him to do this? Or does she have such confidence in Boaz's integrity, or at least in God's sovereign control, that she knows this will work out? It's unclear. We don't know. But what is clear is the danger that Ruth must face. And you can imagine what this will be like. I mean, he could very easily take advantage of her as she is in his bed. This, of course, as we've established, the time of the judges when sexual immorality was rampant. We also know that sexual immorality often took place at the threshing floor. The prophets of God would warn of the prostitutes who would actually come to the threshing floor, one of the few times in which men were away from their wives overnight, and that they would come, these cult prostitutes, and this perverted act of worship to these pagan gods. And there's also great parallels, by the way, to the way Moab even started. Perhaps you are aware that Moab started because Lot's daughter got him drunk, and then when he was totally inebriated, had this insensuous relationship, and, and based upon that, they had a child named Moab. And there's great parallels between Genesis 19 and Ruth chapter 3, and we're wondering, what is she saying? There's certainly great danger. Of, and maybe Boaz is a man of integrity, but maybe he'll totally misunderstand what Ruth is saying, and he's going to drive her off as some immoral harlot. Maybe you say, what are you doing in my bed? What are you thinking? Get out of here. In fact, never come back to my fields again. Or he could recognize the nobility and the purity of her actions and respond in kind, which seems to me like the least likely outcome. At the very least, things go terribly wrong. It's a huge gamble. But amazingly, you notice Ruth's response in verse 5. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. We think she's going to say, you want me to do what? She said, I'll do it. Okay, I'll go with this plan. It's fascinating to me. I do want you to notice, by the way, the change in Naomi. You remember Naomi, when we first were introduced to her, she was consumed with her grief and inward and bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Marta. The Lord has been bitter against me. She's unmoved by Ruth's commitment to her, unwilling to go out glean. She had given up, hadn't she? And now she has all this planning, all these schemes. We wonder what's happened to her. What, what accounts for this change in her life? Well, I think it's back in verse 20 of chapter 2. Remember when we said uh, in response to Ruth returning with all his grain, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. God has been kind to me. And now Naomi begins to believe not only does God rule, but God is good and she is filled with hope. And it's this hope that leads Naomi into action. I think without hope, people are passive. They're victims, aren't they? They say things like, God has against me. Perhaps one of the worst aspects of depression and despondency is the inability to have hope for the future, that things will actually get better. And if there's no hope, then there'll be no planning. There'll be no work. There'll be no dreaming. Perhaps you're here this morning, and this is something you struggle with. Maybe you struggle with depression or despondency, despair. I would like to tell you, I think based upon the authority of God's word, I hope that you see this glimpse that God is working even in the midst of your sadness, that your, your despair is not a cave. It may be a tunnel, but you need to keep moving forward. 
You need to have hope through God's word to keep moving on to God will bring you to bright lights and green pastures. Your despair will only be a tunnel if you sit down and stop moving. If you just camp out there, you need to keep moving forward. I pray that you would move forward as you trust that God is working even when you can't see his hand. That let this word produce this hope in you. In fact, I think this is true not just for for individuals. I think it's true for churches. I think when you have a church that's filled with hope and the sovereign goodness of God, as a church begins to plan and dream and sacrifice and take risks and work as we want to see what God can do through us, as empowered by this great hope in our sovereign and good God. It is hopeless churches that, that just want to hold on, right? And, and don't want to change anything. Just keep doing everything that they've always done and just hold on to what they have with no hope for, for any future. I pray that God would continue to work in Hamilton Baptist Church by letting our hope abound that we serve a great and powerful God that would use us for his fame amongst our neighbors and the nations if we would plan and dream and scheme and work and labor with great hope. In fact, I think there's probably great application just for you, Christian, and just seeing the transformation in Naomi's life. Of course, she is older than Ruth, and she treats her like her daughter. She is her daughter-in-law. I wonder if there's a lesson for some of you older Christians here. I wonder if, if Naomi might challenge you to perhaps draw someone aside and say, listen, do you want to start meeting together? Maybe we could work through the book of Mark or read a book together. And you begin to disciple someone who's younger in the faith, that you begin to pour into their life and encourage them and care for them. I, would, I wonder what would happen to Hamilton Baptist Church if we created this culture of these relationships in each other's lives as we spur one another on towards righteousness. I think there's application here even for parents. As we try to bring along those younger than us, namely our children, we should strategize and plan about how we want to raise our home. We should have a vision for our home. I think so much of parenting is reactive. A child does this, we respond. A child does this, we respond. A child does this, we respond. With no clear direction as to where we want to bring our family. No clear direction as to what we want our children to look like when they're 18 and they leave the home. I pray that God would give us a vision that we would embrace, that we can move forward as we seek to disciple those younger than us. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're... Again, happy that you're here with us this morning. I mentioned to you that I think that though this story is true, it does teach deeper truths about God, who he is and how he acts. Uh, and yet sometimes when we understand that, we, we take that too far. And we think, well, every single detail of the story must teach us some aspect of God. And, and we could be led into danger if we do that. So please don't see this story and think, well, Boaz is, if you will, kind of the Christ-like figure here, and I think he very much does picture Christ. Please don't read that and think, well, in order, therefore, to approach God, I need to get all dressed up and I, I need to fix my life, right? I need to put on a tie if I want to pray to God, or I need to uh, make myself good and holy spiritually if I'm to approach God. That's not what this passage is teaching at all. It's teaching anything for the non-Christian. It is teaching that if we want to approach God, we need to be aware of our need, Ruth is desperately aware of her poverty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And Ruth is going to come to Boaz aware of her great need that only her Redeemer can provide. This is how we come to God. Aware of our need, knowing that he can only provide for us what we need. Well, the first scene closes, and we're left wondering how this is going to work out. We move on to scene number two, Ruth's humble request. Ruth's humble request. No, verse 6. So she went out down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap and grain. 
heap of grain. So the party was over. Um, it's been a good evening. Boaz went to lie down. He's sleeping by the grain. He would do this along with his other workers in order to guard the grain before they can uh, sell it, guard it from thieves of that day. You notice the passage says his heart was merry. Some uh, have taken that to mean that he was inebriated. I, I don't, I don't think we, we certainly don't need to interpret it that way. I, I think his character probably would teach us otherwise. I think he's literally in good spirits, as the word would tell us. He's happy. I mean, this is a great time for him as the harvest has come. He has a merry heart. I do also appreciate the fact that he lied at the end of the grain pile. Some translations say the far end of the grain pile. I think that's God's kind providence that he goes off by himself because Ruth is about to do something, um, that will require that seclusion. In fact, you can imagine what Ruth must be thinking as she's hiding out there, right? I don't know if she's behind a rock or in some crevice, and, and there her man is threshing uh, the grain. I mean, this is romance, right? And, and she's just eyeing him and excited, and I imagine her heart is beating, and she's probably terribly nervous as she watches him lie down, and she eventually works up her courage, and we read on in verse 7, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Perhaps, perhaps something disturbed him. I mean, she uncovered his feet. Now maybe he's cold. And he looked down at his feet and he finds what he is not expecting. A woman. Right? In fact, you notice what it says. Behold, a woman. Right? There is a woman at my feet. Now I must say this happens to me all the time. Um, now, I go to bed, and around midnight, I awake to a brand new person in my bed. Sometimes three or four, right? Um, and, of course, I'm referring to my children. So I kind of know what it's like to be startled with a new presence in, in my bed, but I don't know what it's like, but just for clarity, what it's like to have a new woman in my bed. Um, but this is what Boaz is finding. In fact, he doesn't know what it's like because he says there in verse 9, Who are you? In which Ruth responds with her great meekness, I am Ruth, your servant. And it's at this point that Ruth calls an audible to Naomi's plan. Up to this point, she's just following exactly what Naomi said. But Ruth is not going to go idly by. She's not some pawn in, in Naomi's hands. And so she's, she actually wants to clarify her intention before he tells her what to do. She says in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant. Right? Cover me with your wings or your garment. Now, you could take that a, a, a couple different ways. Again, this is pretty subtle. Right? To, co- to cover one with, with your garment or the wings is the same word. Right? How do you take that? Well, that depends a great deal on your estimation of her character. Right? What do you think about her? If you, if you consider her noble, you recognize she's not asking for a blanket because she's cold or even something more um, illicit, but she's actually asking for marriage. In fact, she's saying, spread your garment over me, draw me close to your side, protect me, and provide for me. There was a custom in this day when one is married that the, the man would take his garment and he would wrap it around his wife, signifying that she now belongs to him, that he will provide for her and that he will protect her. And, and Ruth is there saying, will you marry me? Right there at midnight in his bed. Now imagine what this is like, because he's just woken up and he's been snoring and there's hairs all messed up, the little drool on his chin, and she's thinking, will you marry me? Because she's in love with this man, isn't she? She wants him to be her husband, her redeemer. In fact, I don't know if you remembered, Boaz prayed for her when they first met. Remember that? Back in chapter 2, in verse 12. 
He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now two months later, she's saying, remember when you prayed that prayer? That I was to take refuge under the Lord's wings? Will you be the Lord's wings that I might take refuge? Don't you love it when your wife uses your prayers against you? Right? Remember when you prayed such and such? Well, get to work is what she's saying. Let me be the one that you, you cover, that you care for me and protect me and provide for me. And just in case, just to prove that we're on the right track, at the end of verse 9, she says, for you are a redeemer. Now, a redeemer um, would be a kin, a relative, who would have the unique responsibility to provide for, for uh, his family for his brothers, for his cousins, and so forth. And this has been driven home throughout. Uh, as soon as we are introduced to Boaz, we kept hearing, he's a relative, he's a relative. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 2, and now here in chapter 3, verse 9. And what a redeemer would do is that when, when a relative would, maybe to pay off debts, would sell their family land, uh, the brother, a, a kinsman redeemer, would come and redeem that land and buy that land back that was sold to pay off debt in order to keep the land in the family. Sometimes you would get in so much debt that you would actually sell yourself as a slave. And, th- and again, the, re- the kinsman redeemer would come and buy his kin out of slavery. And this was God's way to keep um, anyone from falling into this cycle of poverty, this, this landless poverty. And so it would stay within the family. And on, on some occasions, you would do this in marriage. And, and the, the situation would be if your brother dies and he leaves a wife without children, the kinsman redeemer, the, his brother would marry his brother's widow. And the first son that he would have would take the deceased brother's name and inherit the deceased brother's land. For instance, in Deuteronomy 25. If the brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." In fact, if you read on in Deuteronomy 25, God imagines this hypothetical situation in which the kinsman redeemer does not want to marry his deceased brother's widow. And she is actually to bring him into the town square in front of everyone. And God says for her to steal his shoe and spit on his face. Right? A public shaming if you will not actually fulfill this duty. Well, Ruth is obviously taking a different tactic, right? Something a little little more subtle, I guess. And she doesn't certainly want to shame Boaz, but she's there asking him to be her redeemer, to, to preserve the family line. Now, we're thinking, okay, how Boaz is going to respond to this. In fact, Boaz was not her husband's brother. He wasn't even her husband's uncle. He is a distant relative. And we also know that there's no stipulation for what happens when you marry a foreigner. Am I supposed to do this with a Moabitess? And so there are plenty of legal loopholes for Boaz to walk right through on this situation. Plus, you have the scandal of a woman proposing to a man, a Moabite proposing to an Israelite, a servant proposing to a boss, a poor person proposing to a rich person, and a younger person proposing to an older person. It's simply not done. And we're wondering, what is he going to say in response to this? Now, I think I would say, well, you know, I need a cup of coffee because this is a lot to take in. It is midnight and this is, this is pretty startling news. And can we talk about this in the morning? Can I think about this? But Boaz um, is a better man than I am. He doesn't hesitate at all for we see here in verse uh, 9, uh, verse 10. He said to her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, he says, yes, right? Absolutely, I will do this. And he is pumped up and excited. Am I dreaming? Is this really happening to me? The Lord bless you, he says, right? This is, this is Boaz's line, isn't it? As we already saw in chapter 2, he's constantly talking about, I want God to bless you. And he says, Ruth, the Lord bless you because he sure is blessing me right now because this is extraordinary. And I just love Boaz. Because he's this wealthy man, he's got fields and workers, and Ruth is kind of one step above a beggar, and he says, you are choosing me? And he's startled by it. He's amazed by it. Every time he talks, he speaks about the Lord. He's concerned for his workers and the poor. And now he's working on the threshing floor with all everyone else, even helping them guard it through the night. He has a lot of reason to be proud. He is in the top of society. And every time we see him, there's this meekness about him. You want me. I can't believe this. Now, some of you guys have experienced this, haven't you? You have gone and asked a woman way out of your league to be your wife. And when she said yes, you're like, really? Right? In fact, you're married. You've experienced this, haven't you? Right? Shake your head. This time to shake your head. Absolutely. Yes. This is my situation. And Boaz is like, I can't believe this is happening. This is amazing. In fact, he says in verse 11, I'll do it. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. I'll marry you. He has this great eagerness to him. He goes on to praise her. You're a worthy woman, he says. She has this reputation, this Moabitess, who showed up in town two months ago, disregarded, widowed, childless, destitute, and because of her hard work, caring for her mother-in-law in the hot days, working the fields, the whole town has taken note of this. And they understand that she is a worthy woman. In fact, I, you may not be aware, but your Old Testament, uh, the book order in our Old Testament is different than the book order in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same books, the same scripture, but our Old Testament book order follows the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the order of the books is totally different. But if you go by, for instance, the Hebrew Bible, which is just the Old Testament, you'll find different, the, or, the books in different order. And do you know what comes after the book of Proverbs? The book of Ruth. Do you know what the last chapter in the book of Proverbs is about? The Proverbs 31 woman, isn't it? In fact, the book of Proverbs says, a wife of noble character, who can find she is worth far more than rubies? That phrase, noble character, is the exact phrase that Boaz attributes of her. You are a worthy woman. Same thing in in the Hebrew. In fact, you might this week spend time working through Proverbs 31, just see all the characteristics of Ruth that you can glean from that passage. In fact, the very last word, uh, verse in the book of Proverbs is, let her works bring her praise at the city gate. That word city gate, let her works bring her praise at the city gate. It's the same word that Boaz uses in verse 11 when he says, my fellow townsmen. It is literal reading the people of the gate. And so what he is saying is you are a Proverbs 31 woman. In fact, the people at the gate already rejoice in your nobility and your worthy character. They have seen it and they recognize it and so do I. And we're thinking everything is going well, right? We could hear the wedding bells in the background until verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Can you imagine the anguish of those words? I mean, she thinks I'm going to be wed to this guy, and all of a sudden he says, I would love to, but there's someone who has a right to do it 
that's greater than my right. And Boaz says, uh, you know, we, can't, we need to go slow. We need to figure this out. In fact, verse 13, he says, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. Now, he probably could have left out the word good. Um, but anyways, uh, he says, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, he swears his oath as, as on the life of God. I will redeem you. Now lie down till morning. And so Boaz says, I'm going to do it, but, but there's someone who has a prior right to me. And I think about what would happen in our day. And, and I wonder if someone would, well, maybe I just need to get a lawyer and sue for my rights. Or maybe I need to, to find a pastor who will tell me, well, this whole law of kinsman redeemer doesn't really work in your context. And you don't really need to obey it. You just need to follow your heart. Maybe you find some friends and say, listen, Boaz, you're not getting any younger. And, and, and she's obviously into you and you both love each other. And so what's the problem? Maybe you turn on Oprah or Dr. Phil's or whoever's on television these days. And they say, listen, God created love. And so how can love be wrong? Just go for it. Right? Don't worry about the law. You're in love. Follow your heart, right? We can't go wrong if we follow our heart and let your emotions drive you. Not Boaz, though. Mm-mm. I want you to understand that Boaz would rather remain single and not marry the love of his life than to disobey God. He would rather remain single and not marry the love of his life than disobey his God. He is a man of integrity and purity. And he is willing to set aside his emotions to do what is right. Not just in some future marriage, but even throughout the night. Because Boaz says to her, I don't know if you saw this, at the end of verse 13, lie down until morning. Now again, I'm not sure how wise that is. Right? And I understand he doesn't want to send her home because it's dangerous out there. He says, stay here the night. There's no reason you should be out at this hour. But you think he would make another bed for her or at least put some grain in between the two of them. But here he is. I mean, they're, they're going to lie down until morning together. Um, and yet, they remain pure. Let me just think about that. They're in bed together. Stars are out. He's looking at the woman he loves. She's looking good. And there's integrity. And there is purity. Out of a love for God, He will not touch her. Because His commitment to God exceeds anything. In fact, I think about every single love story in our culture today, and it always seems, almost everyone culminating in this illicit act of passion. And we just allow ourselves to drink it in. And we don't we even forget that it's in rebellion to God's good plan for us. And we're even cheered and happy for them when they get together. And I want you to see there's a different picture of what biblical love looks like between a man and a woman. There's a devotion to God and a beautiful purity here. In fact, I appreciate what John Piper said rather strongly when preaching on this text. He said, The mood of American life today is, if it feels good, do it. And to hell with your guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you, if the stars are shining in their beauty and your blood is thudding like a hammer and you are safe in the privacy of your place, stop. For the sake of righteousness, let the morning dawn on your purity. Don't be like the world. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Profoundly in love, powerful in self-control, and committed to righteousness. May God raise up people in Hamilton Baptist Church who are committed to righteousness. 
teenage girls and college-age girls and single women who will seek purity with God above a relationship with a man. Teenage guys and college-age guys and single men who will refuse to gratify the desires of their flesh, who will refuse to toss aside their devotion to their Savior in order to seek after their own pleasure. Husbands and wives who will guard what they expose themselves to, whether through sight or through reading, that they would not fill their minds with things that would dishonor our God. May God give us this integrity and purity we see in his word. And so here they are uh, in bed together. I'm not sure she slept well. She's just heard that in the next 24 hours, she's going to be engaged either into the love of her life or some complete stranger. And I don't think he slept very well either. Because he must be thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And how am I going to talk to this guy? And how is this all going to work out? And they are, they are there working through the night. In verse 14, we see dawn comes, so she lay on his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said to her, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And so he says he wants to guard her purity and her reputation and sends her off before, before people can recognize her. But before he does, he doesn't send her off empty-handed. Right? Evidently, Boaz did not have a ring. He's caught off guard here a little bit. So what does he do? He says in verse 15, he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. So here's some grain, here's some barley. And um, he gives that to her. We don't know how much this is. It's literally he gave her six. The measure is not uh, mentioned, but some speculate it might be 50 pounds. Some suggest as many as 70 pounds based upon the measures of that day. He loads her up, right? Ruth is a tough girl. And she goes home to Naomi full of barley. And, and we come now to the last scene as we quickly conclude. Ruth and Naomi waiting for redemption. Ruth and Naomi waiting for redemption. Note verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And so if you think that Ruth didn't sleep well, what about Naomi? Because she sent her off and she's got to be thinking, what's going on with her? And um, there's no text messaging this day. Ruth, Ruth is not on Twitter and there's no little updates that she's sending her. And so she must be uh, very disturbed with what's actually happening to her daughter-in-law. And she shows up and uh, the translation says, how does it fare for you? The, literally, she says, who are you? It's the exact same words that Boaz said when, she, when he saw her in her bed. Who are you? It's not that the fact she didn't recognize her because it wasn't light enough. No, the fact is, is, who have you become, right? Are you now the future Mrs. Boaz? Is this what, how this is going to work out? What did he say is what she wants to know. And this seems to be one of the kind of the questions of the book of Ruth. Who is this woman? Because they keep hearing that she's a Moabitess, but she sure acts like a follower of God, doesn't she? As we see her glorious commitment to him. And so she, she tells Naomi everything that happened. And then in verse 17, we get some new parts of, of the, his, her encounter with Boaz saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. And so we may have thought the gift was a gift to Ruth. Right? Or maybe a ruse that people might think, oh, well, she's just out in the morning getting some grain. 
But Boaz, a man of wisdom, is already giving gifts to his future mother-in-law, right? And he says, here, take this, give this to your mother-in-law so that she can be satisfied. In fact, I want you to see that the narrator, what he does, we don't hear Boaz say this to Ruth. We hear Ruth quote Boaz to Naomi. It's coming out of Ruth's mouth to Naomi. The reason why is because Naomi was standing right by, Ruth was standing right by Naomi's side when she heard, I went away full. And God brought me back empty. Right? And now Ruth comes to her and says, You are not empty. You've never been empty. God has always been working. Here is the grain. Here is a promise to redeem. You are not empty. When God feels distant and nothing is working out and you feel empty, let the Word of God work in your heart that you are not empty. God is working. God is loving you. God is providing for you even the difficulty. If you are in Christ, you will never be empty. Never. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Christian is never empty. God is always working for us. God has provided, as we see for Naomi, as he does for us. I think the point of the book of Ruth often is to turn our eyes to the love of God and to see how he provides. See that we would understand and appreciate the love that he has for us, the protection that he gives for us. You know, right now, our Lord is being worshipped in heaven. The Bible says that that I saw a, a myriad upon myriad of angels, thousands upon angels, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and honor and might and glory and blessing. You are worthy. This God is being worshipped by thousands upon thousands of angels. And it is the God who loves you. It is the God who said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, the God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin. He abounds in love for you, Christian. You have no idea the love that God has for you. The God of the universe loves you. He has spread His cloak over you. He is your refuge and He will never leave you empty. Never. Naomi, I think, realizes this finally. In verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You need to wait. Literally, you need to sit still, she says. Hang tight. Now, I trust this was difficult for Ruth. I, I trust that she didn't want to sit still. But it's out of her hands. She's powerless. In fact, earlier in this chapter, we saw these plans and these schemes and do this and do that and do this. Make your request known. Make your need known. But now she can't do anything. She has to wait for her Redeemer to act. It's all upon Him. In fact, God often asks His people to wait. When Israel is trapped between the Red Sea and the chariots of Pharaoh, God says to them through Moses, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. When Job is discouraged and despaired and desperately ill, God says to him, stand still and consider the wonders of God. When David is troubled by the abounding sin in society and the growing corruption in his culture, God says to him, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait, she tells Ruth, wait to see how it goes. How is this possible? Well, she can wait because Boaz is not. She could rest because Boaz will not. You see that at the end of verse 18? For the man will not rest until he settles the matter today. 
You can rest because your Redeemer is not resting. He is working on your behalf. As we end our time this morning, I came across a story. I think it beautifully captures this picture of rest in our Lord. A man rode about when he was a little boy and he would curl up in the back seat of his family car and his father would drive them back to their hometown often through the night. He said, I felt so safe tucked back there with dad in the driver's seat. However, sometimes his grandmother would be with them and she would sit on the edge of the front seat instructing him. Every car that came their way, she would say, watch the side of the road. Be careful there. The driver's coming next to us. Don't drive so fast. Right? You may be thinking this sounds familiar. I don't know. Be, be, be careful here. All right. Uh, the author continues and says, I'm convinced my grandmother never enjoyed the ride because she didn't trust my father. And because she didn't trust his driving, she can never rest in the journey. She then summarizes. Grandmother and I both reached our destination and at the same time. But one of us got there with frazzled nerves while the other arrived happy and rested. I was leaning to rest in my father's care. This is what Naomi encourages with. Rest in the work of your Redeemer. We can rest even in the midst of hardship in the fact that our Redeemer is working and that He loves us and that He provides for us. Every Christian is going to arrive in the new heaven at the same time and by the same way. The only difference, the only question that remains is how many of us will enjoy the journey along the way. How many of us will trust Him? Well, it's here the curtain closes on these women in need. This will be the last time we hear from Ruth or Naomi. They won't speak another word in this book. The focus now shifts to their Redeemer. It shifts to Boaz, who said, as we've already seen, that there is a Redeemer closer than I. And he's referring in chapter 4 to Mr. So-and-so, the man we never know his name. But, but I think he's hinting, at least God is hinting, that there is a Redeemer closer than Boaz, a kinsman Redeemer. In fact, God is called in Isaiah a kinsman Redeemer. Jesus actually is that kinsman Redeemer. He would become our kin, would He not? He who, though, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He became our kin. And out of that love for us, our Redeemer has purchased us. He has laid down His life for us to shelter us from the wrath of God for our sins. He provides us with everything we need, far better than food and finances, barley and babies, eternal life. As He gave His life for you, Christian, He took God's wrath for you. He was crucified for you because He loves you. Father, we thank You for the love of our Redeemer. We thank You for the Lord who has done His great and mighty work for us that we too have been redeemed. He has taken us from our bondage to sin and brought us into His family as He has paid the price that only He could. And we thank You for His great work. I pray that we would leave this room knowing more of His love, understanding that He is working for our good. I pray for my friends here this morning that do not know this love. I ask that You would work in their hearts that they too might put faith in this God who offers them salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. If they would simply bow their knee to King Jesus, confess Him as their Lord, place their faith in Him, this day and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name.